Greetings and salutations, friends and family and co-workers and cohorts. We are excited to have you here today for another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Quick shout out as always to Lead411 and Gong.io, our two sponsors. We're super excited to always work with them and appreciate their support, not only with us, but within the sales community. So please be sure to check them out. Without further ado, uh, we have a really interesting gentleman with us today. His name is Andrew Sykes, and he is the CEO and founder of Habits at Work, um, which I'm hoping that means good habits, not bad habits, but, but maybe he'll break those down for us so we can figure this shit out and stop doing stupid stuff. But Andrew, thanks for joining the show. Christian Scott, thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. So let's, let's discuss that first, right? Habits at Work. Um, and to a certain extent, what was even the genesis of creating this business? I mean, it's been around for a long time, right? You've been doing this for 14 years. Um, what was the genesis of this, you know, 15 years ago? And what does it really mean? Yeah, well, it's, it's come a long way because 15 years ago, it was a business built to solve, frankly, some of my own messy habits. I had been a smoker since I was six years old. Not, not 20 a day, but that's the first time I ever puffed on a cigarette. And I was still smoking in my 20s and early 30s, despite becoming an actuary. And so in theory, knowing better and running a health insurance consultancy. Smoking at six? How did that happen? I'm the youngest of eight kids. My older brother, Greg, was smoking a cigarette and I caught him in the act. And so he said, hey, you want to puff? in order to avoid getting into trouble. And so it began. Wow. And how long did you secretly smoke, I guess, the whole time you were a child? The entire time. I mean, it was every quarter, perhaps one puff and doing it with a friend. And then in high school, it became more regular. By college, I was smoking a pack a day. Wow. And, you know, it took me some time to figure out that I was pretending to myself that I wasn't a real smoker because I used to describe myself as a social smoker who just had a very social life, a very active social life. And so I was eventually confronted by the reality that I've got this bad habit and I don't know how to quit it successfully. Despite That's, many. Attempts. What was that confrontation? What was that, you know, pop in the head of like, okay, I got to get this out of under control and out of my system. At age 25, my mom contracted and then shortly thereafter died from pancreatic cancer. And in our last conversation, after saying our goodbyes and our I love yous, she said, one of the things I hope for you, Andrew, is you'll finally figure out how to quit smoking. And I promised her that I would. And three days later at her funeral, later that night, after a couple of drinks, I had another cigarette and another one after that before remembering my promise. And that's when I realized and that there is something wrong here that an apparently somewhat intelligent person keeps making the same mistake over and over again. And there must be a better way. So we started a business and then a research lab to try and understand how human beings think and feel and act and therefore how we create habits and how we quit bad habits when knowing enough isn't the same as doing enough. Yeah. And you, and so it, this whole business was born out of, as you said, working on your own habits and, and 
vices and things and things like that. Um, once you get the information on what forms a habit, how to break habits, how did you figure out how to package that into some digestible way that could make an impact on others and, and, and turn it into something that you could teach and market? I'm interested about the business of habits, if you will. How do you turn that into a, a business? Yeah, well, the first version of the business was focused on people's health habits, given my own experience. And so we decoded what it takes to create new habits or could old ones and started a consulting business to teach companies how to bring that to life for their employees. And I have to say there was not a very smart business model because it's a very complicated problem. And what we found was we were spending more time helping health and wellness and health related businesses to take their message to market and train their sales teams while we were trying to help them with habit creation. And so about five years ago, we changed our name from Health at Work, which was the original company, to Habits at Work. And today, the only habits we focus on are habits related to sales and customer success, one of which happens to be the habit of self-care, looking after yourself and your own you know, personal health habits. But it's broadened the scope, changed our focus, and we have a completely different business. But Scott, to your point, how do we package this? It comes from this key insight that we had, which is that we don't have habits as human beings. Our habits have us. Meaning, we tend to give ourselves a hard time because we can't quit smoking or we can't make 100 cold calls a day or whatever we committed to doing as a habit and we tell ourselves I lack willpower or motivation and we really criticize ourselves deeply. And our view is, that your habits are encoded in the world that surrounds you. Or in a simpler English, you're a response to the environment in which you find yourself. So you behave one way in a library and a completely different way in a bar watching a game of football. Not because you're two different people, but because the environment makes certain habits in those environments the easy default. So how we package it is to create training programs that not only teach people what quality looks like in a certain skill, but then how to design their world, whether that's their home office or their cubicle or their social network, such that these skills become the easy choice habits rather than the difficult, challenging choice every day. And what are, what are some of the most common habits that you find sales organizations and customer service organizations um, are seeking help with fixing not not i don't mean like health like physical ones like i'm talking about tactical everyday habits that workers have that we need to fix and improve upon what are some of the common ones well the, the question we usually asked is to solve what i consider to be higher order outcomes from practicing certain habits so sales leaders will say we want to train our team on how to close better or how to run better discovery conversations or how to negotiate better. And for us, those are compound sales moves that are built from the Lego blocks of more fundamental habits. And for us, those fundamental habits are things like posing the right questions and listening empathically, 
telling the right story at the right time for the right reason, running really tight and highly impactful meetings, and so on. So we constructed a taxonomy, if you like, of how you go about solving business outcomes that CROs look for, faster time to quota, higher close ratios, bigger deals, and ask the question, which primary and fundamental habits will work best at which stage during the sales cycle? And so we go to work on those habits. And they are not a replacement for a sales methodology. They fit into any sales methodology because they are primarily habits that make you great as a conversationalist. And our view is that sales, at least today, remains a conversational act. In other words, we speak our customers and our preferred future literally into existence in these creative conversations. Yeah, that's interesting. So we've been, we've been thinking about it uh, all backwards, all the wrong way in, in many cases, or asking ourselves the wrong type of question. I think it's a natural human tendency that we focus on the outcomes we want and then put our attention there. And so it takes a change in perspective to realize that, as someone said the other day in a conversation, shouting at the scoreboard doesn't make the difference. It's doing the basic reps that makes you a great player that allows you to score the wins. That's, that's the important focus. Some may describe it as focusing on... The Scott has a passion of shouting at the scoreboard. He, he's a Buffalo Bills fan. All he can do is shout at the scoreboard. <laughs> so. I, I, it may be a great pastime, but Scott, how effective is it at changing the outcome of a game? <laughs> I give myself more credit than I deserve for, for <laughs> exactly. Things he thinks it works. So uh, actually, it probably does yeah. work when, when, when they win. It works. It. it <laughs> I think it works well, for Scott it's interesting when he's the athlete. Yeah. Uh, that's, diff that's a little bit different. Then I'm just like telling myself the right kind of uh, things that's, to do. So, so dig into that, right? So Scott was a, a college Division One athlete, soccer and tennis. And he, you know, break this down a little bit because Scott put in, I assume, Scott, you put in the right time and the right practice. But then to create the habits – but then what happened if you were losing? Was it a habit issue? Was the other person better than you? And, and Andrew, I'm curious as to like how you see that on the business side of things. Well, my first uh, insight there or reaction is our experience as professional athletes or, or amateur athletes, or indeed in almost any domain where we're striving for mastery other than business, has it be true that the better you get, the more you're expected to practice? So in the case of someone going to the Olympics, they might spend four years preparing for a 9.8 second sprint. And then you get into business and it turns out the more you're promoted, the more we tell ourselves, I've got this, I have experience, and therefore I no longer need to practice. And the result of that is we all know many people with 30 years of experience, who are just not that good. And a lot of people who have been in sales, then in sales management, then in sales leadership, who if today they had to get on a cold call or being a sales meeting, might find that their skills have gotten rusty and bad habits have crept in over time. 
So one of the missions I'm on is to change sales cultures such that they become cultures of practice from top to bottom. Because I think that experience when gained on automatic, that sort of unconscious experience is the enemy of mastery and deliberate practice with feedback from a coach is the genesis of genius. Scott, what is your opinion of what he just said as an athlete and a business person? I, I completely agree with him, right? Obviously, it feels obvious to me that the, the better you get, the more you're, you're practicing. Um, I also feel like the more that you're practicing, these habits become automatic. It's not like, it's not like I'm thinking like, oh, I'm in the middle of a game, uh, I'm under duress here, I need to, you know, move the ball to the left more, right? It just happens because it's become muscle memory on, on, on some level. And I feel the same way about sales calls. I can have this call plan however I want, and I can, you know, philosophically know, okay, if somebody says this objection to me, this is probably the best kind of rebuttal but I'm not sitting there like processing it. And if I've practiced enough and know my stuff enough, I'm not having to go look at my notes and flip around everywhere and everything like the rebuttal just kind of comes out. Right. <clears throat> and that, I don't know how to pinpoint that, uh, that moment when the habit becomes muscle memory. Maybe Andrew can kind of elaborate on that based on all the research that, that you've done on this. Is there, is there a way to gauge when you've achieved this kind of like automatic response? Yes, there is. And, and you're right, Scott, it turns out that our brain wires to make these behaviors automatic. And I think that's both a blessing and a curse. Why it's awesome is you get on a sales call and an objection comes up, you've done it a million times, you've practiced it and you're really good at it. And so you can handle it almost in, in automatic without thinking about it, which is great. I think the danger is when you reach a point of satisficing. And I'll give you an analogy. When you were learning to drive a car, it was effortful and difficult. And so you practiced with the intention of getting better. And at some point you had it figured out and you say to yourself, you know, I've got this. And now you drive from A to B and like sales leaders, you start focusing on the outcome. Did I get there successfully? And you happen to drive to work or to a meeting and you forgot how you even arrived, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Or, you, or, or there's this last couple minutes, you're like, I don't really remember driving. What right. did I just do in the last minute or two? How did I pass yeah. the exit? Yeah. So, so that's awesome. But here's the price you pay is you don't get much better when things become habitual. So from our point of view, we're looking for habits to emerge that are repetitive over time, but not necessarily below your consciousness. Or if they are like handling an objection, at least stopping from time to time and saying, hang on, could I be even better at this habit? So let me now go back into beginner mode, even though I've handled the same objection a thousand times and see what might I do to polish my skill here so that I go from satisfactory to extraordinary. Mm. And, and what, um, what, like, how do you keep that top of mind? I guess I'm trying to figure out like the conscious versus subconscious threshold, right? I think every time you find yourself operating effectively 
on an unconscious or subconscious basis, you can say to yourself two things. Great, I've got this and be successful in doing that. And then I find it useful to have a bunch of coaches in my life who from time to time stop me and say, hey, Andrew, you're committed to being a professional speaker. I've noticed you've plateaued in the last year. So let's stop for a while and now go and break down some of the bad habits that have crept in or go and refresh and take to the next level some of the habits that you've been working on in that domain or in running reconnaissance or discovery conversations or any of the sales moves that we teach. And, and what, what is your um, cadence for doing that? Do you go back and like listen to the tape and like watch the videos of you giving these presentations and break it down and say, oh, I got a little, you know, my energy dropped here or I tripped over my words here. Is that, is that the, the way you go about trying to work on these things or is there a different methodology that works for you? It is. That's one of the things I do. And then the other thing we do in, in, in our little company, we are in every meeting every day where we have one or more of us in a meeting, whether it's with a customer or internally, we're asking each other to be a demonstration of the habits that we teach. And then we do coaching or feedback at the end of every single meeting. And it may only take two minutes because we ask people to reflect on something they did well. We'll share one did well. We ask them to reflect on something they could do differently in the very next meeting. We'll share one do differently and we go. So it's rapid feedback and iterative, yeah. uh, iterative learning. As an as a expert in habits and, and as a, a team around you who's talking about and coaching this stuff all the time, do you ever feel this like immense pressure to have zero bad habits whatsoever? Yes. I feel like if I have bad habits in my life, then what right do I have to teach others about this? And the truth is I got bad habits and new ones emerge. You know, as COVID hit, I started drinking more alcohol than I used to. I've exercised less. In fact, it's a great social experiment to prove our case that when the environment changes, your behavior changes. And so I'm currently at work reestablishing some of my good old habits that had lagged a little and taking care of some of the bad habits. I don't buy this argument that habits are something that you do for 30 days or 60 days and then you got them for life. There's yeah. just no experience that tells us that's true. So I'm of the view that creating and sustaining good habits is something that you're doing every single day. Do, do you buy into this kind of uh, theory that it takes 21 days to form a new habit or 21 days to break a habit? Sounds like no. I don't. I have two views around that. One is that you can create or break a habit in 15 seconds flat. If you are successful in redesigning the contexts that surround you, and that then, you know, 20, 30, 60 days later, your brain starts to wire to support the continuation of those habits. But it's more about the design of your world and your environment than it is about the wiring of your brain. Wiring follows environmental design rather than the other way around. I'm, I'm somebody who has a hard time seeing results and so I would have a hard time trying to measure my change in these particular, right? So I'm thinking even in like silly things, like let's say my house is a total mess, right? 
and I might, we might spend an hour or two cleaning it up and my kids or my wife would say, doesn't the house look better? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Like, I don't see the progress sometimes until something is done. So how would somebody who thinks like me, you know, best measure the change in, in, in habits and the progress that one is making rather than just fixating on the like end result, right? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, you've, you've pointed to probably the key reason why people lose motivation. Yeah. Which is they do something and they've done it for 30 days. And man, I just haven't lost weight. I can't see any change in my physique. Yeah. So this was too much effort. Give it up. Yeah. I'm still on the same belt loop, right? Exactly. Yeah. So a few things I think. One is to remind yourself that habits are like compound interest to your talent bank account. And every day, if you look at your interest in your bank account, it's negligible and annoyingly small. But even a fairly small interest rate, say 1%, if you were improving a skill 1% every single working day, you'd be 10 times better in a single year, which is pretty impressive. I think the only way to resolve this dilemma that we don't see results quickly is A, to take our focus off the result and put it back onto the input. And then B, to have some kind of standard or measure that we can look at once a month, once a quarter to see, are we having an impact? And coaches are great for that. Team members are great for that. And just plain old hard metrics. Like, am I losing weight? Am I gaining muscle? Am I closing more deals? Am I having conversations with customers that they give me better feedback on about my performance every single month? Is there, is there patterns that you see like, um, you know, sales teams are more resistant and customer service teams tend to be faster at changing their habits or marketing teams or one way or the other. I'm, I'm wondering if there's, if there's any data that shows, you know, somebody in working in a particular discipline handles these things differently or better than, than somebody else, or if it's, totally, you know, irrelevant. This is a very personal thing. It's just Scott does it real good. Andrew does it real good. Richard does it so-so, right? I've not noticed any difference between sales, account management, customer success, marketing, or leadership, except I have noticed that the older we get, the more we tend to tell ourselves, I've got experience and I've got this. And so we start to lose our beginner mindset, our curiosity yeah. and our growth mindset. And those are all you get, a little more rigid, learning. get a little more rigid, maybe we do. And it, it surprises me to hear you say that there's no difference uh, in people who are in leadership. Cause I, I think my brain immediately goes to, well, people in leadership probably are really good at this, right? Recognizing bad habits, fixing them, picking up a new bad habit, fixing it, optimizing the good habits and doubling down on those. So it's, it's interesting to me that you say uh, you haven't seen you know, much data to, to support that necessarily. Because I think there are two opposing forces. On the one hand, they're doing something in their life to improve their skills such that they be recognized, promoted, and get into positions of leadership. And so those, there's some fundamental drive, I think, in many leaders to improve themselves. And as we get into leadership, we start being asked 
to manage other people rather than to improve our own skills. And as I say, that complex of I've got this and experience sometimes kicks in. And But I, I think the most honest thing we can say is like in every domain of business, there are extraordinary leaders who maintain a growth mindset. They're practicing their skills every single day and they just continue to level up. And there are some who, you know, have become stagnant and have given up on practice. And I think the same is true for someone who's in their first three months of the job and someone who's three months away from retirement. And my personal mission is to reach retirement, still considering myself an amateur that's trying to improve. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a little bit ago that, um, you know, COVID had like presented this new set of, of challenges and, um, created new habits, some good, maybe some bad. I'm wondering if, if this has been like a boon to your, to your business, because so many companies and workers are thrown into this work from home thing for the first time. Right. Like I I am, I, I, I stopped working for other people in October of last year. Uh, I had about three months or so where I was working from home, nobody else around. It took me at least six weeks for me to figure out what the hell I was doing and get into any kind of good routine. And then boom, COVID hits, everything explodes all around me. My kids are home trying to figure out school. My wife is working from home and I had to kind of do it all over again. And so I can imagine that I'm not unique in that regard. And a lot of people have been going through this. Do you feel like there was a sort of a spike when this first happened and like, oh my gosh, everybody needs to figure out, you know, new patterns and rhythms and everything. And now people think that they've kind of got it or are people still really struggling with this and trying to, uh, you know, get even, even better. Yeah. From our point of view, it seems like the first month to three was characterized by panic, fear, and risk management. And so there was very little attention on certainly our products and services or the habits of sellers. I think it was more, firstly, do we have the right people on the team? Can we afford the team? How do we preserve cash? And all of these behaviors that are necessarily once-off rather than habitual. Then things settled down and the new reality of working from home became, well, a new reality and permanent, at least semi-permanent for now. And I think sales leaders started to realize with people now remote and not being able to walk around, by uh, manage by walking around, how might we support people having extraordinary sales habits when they're at home and they've got their kids on e-learning behind and you know they're in their bedroom trying to get the job done. So fortunately for us, our business was hammered in March, recovered by June, and we're growing again. And we're very lucky. We had taken all of our programs virtual two years ago in response to global customers saying, you know, we need these things to be delivered virtually because we've got people all over the world. So that was very, very lucky. Europe, so you were a little bit prepared in, on some level. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, still 80% of our business was instructor-led live training. 
but we had done the work to get ready. So like everyone, we had to adjust and we had customers saying, we're delaying prospects saying, we'll call you back in six months. And even some customers saying we, we are facing going out of business. So we need to cancel our contract. Yeah. Largely sales teams have come back from that and they're in many cases firing well and growing and reinvesting in their people skills, recognizing that on the one hand, selling hasn't changed. You still have to connect with human beings, convince them that you're a trusted advisor that can guide them to the right solution, whether that's your company's products or another's. But the medium of communication has changed and the reality of what customers are dealing with has changed. So of course those need new habits in sellers, but the fundamentals of listening to people and guiding them and being committed to them making progress in their lives, which is how we define sales, that hasn't changed, I think. Let, let's dig into that a little bit because you mentioned this phrase, extraordinary sales habits. So I want to know what your definition of extraordinary sales habits looks like. They are for me, the habits that leave a customer feeling like from their first impression, you are someone who is credible, trustworthy, and passionate. And that first impression turns into the lasting impression that you're someone who's likable and committed to their success. Because we believe the first thing that happens in the sales process is that a customer decides that they want to buy from you before they decide what they want to buy from your company. So the first sale to be made is I'm the person who can stand with you, look at your problems, help you solve them. And you can trust me not only to do that and recommend my products when they're a match, but also have the integrity to say, you know what, Scott, for the problem you're dealing with, my company's products are not the best fit. May I recommend even a competitor if that's the right thing to do. And that may sound crazy when we're all facing quotas, but time after time, I've been rewarded by prospects that I've guided elsewhere who've come back to me when the time is right and the fit is better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is this field that you're in, do you think getting more popular with, you know, folks like James Clear and Atomic Habits and, and the rise of, you know, that book's kind of become like a pop culture sensation. I, I feel like, um, are we at an interesting t time here where, um, like the time is right for the focus to be on, on your field and your, in your discipline? Are we becoming more aware of the power of, of habits, both good and bad? Are we becoming more introspective with this stuff? Do you think or no? I do think we're, we're riding a cultural change wave because certainly when I was growing up, when someone said the word habits, you associated it with bad habits. And today, I don't think that's the natural association anymore. And you're right, James Clear and Charles Duhigg and many others have written wonderful books on habits that have brought it to the public attention. I do feel like in sales and customer success, leaders now are really attuned to the problem that a lot of sales training, even when it's really good, and even when it's packed with insights and people enjoy the experience, 
is quickly forgotten, seldom yeah. implemented, and doesn't turn into habits. Yeah, I call that the, the sunburn effect. <laughs> the sun shines on you for a while, you know, get tan, tan, you look good, but unfortunately it peels off a few days later, right? That's a beautiful analogy. If, if I borrow that and I'm inclined to do so, I hope I remember to credit you with that because it's a fair wonderful enough. picture of how it works. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, what are, I mean, you mentioned Charles and, and, and James, and those are two of my favorite, if not my two favorite um, authors and books on, on habits. Do you have other recommendations for, for folks? What are some other good, uh, good writings or, or, you know, podcasts that you listen to about this stuff for people to, to check out? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is our view of habit creation, that it's, more around context design than it is about inner drive means that our reading list is everything from how you design office space and, and living architecture through to behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, and everything in between that has anything to say about how humans are influenced. So I love books by Cialdini on influence. Uh, Bob Mester is about to publish his new book on demand side selling, which I think will be fascinating from the early previews. I love the work of Albert Bandura, which may sound a little obscure. He's probably the third most important psychologist perhaps you've never heard of. And he was the father of social learning theory. And his books I find perhaps the most dense I've ever read. And what I mean by that is, Every time I read a sentence, I have to sit down and think, wow, that was really insightful. I've just learned something. And his books are you know, 300 page long textbooks. So those are fun to read. Uh, I also like the easier to read versions of influence books like the Dan and Chip Heath books, Made to Stick and others. Great. So, uh, we, we have a long reading list. Happy to share that with you. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I love... Uh... I've never heard of 90% of those. So um, it's always good to get some things on my radar and I go back and listen to the, the tape later on and, and write them down and everything. One, one, one last question on my mind here before we uh, have to kind of wrap up, but um, I'd love to hear how you coach people on habits around self-care, specifically as it pertains to salespeople right now, you know, a difficult employment environment, um, depending on what industry you're in or what product you're selling, brutal sales environment. I think people are struggling to hit quota, um, worried about their job, and then all the other stressors that we're under. You know, I've, I've been telling people, whether we realize it or not, like we're all dealing with crisis right now and a little bit of trauma. Um, and so self-care, has never been more important and, and to me never been more confusing right now in terms of what to do. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of how you're coaching on, on self-care right now. Scott, the approach we take is similar for all habits, which is that it starts with a mindset shift. And the one that I found works best for self-care is having people realize that Self-care is not something you try and find the time for when you're done serving customers, your family, and everyone else that we live to serve. And that investing in your self-care is something you do 
in the service of being great for all of these people. Because as bad a reputation as salespeople sometimes have, I'm of the view that most people who are in sales are absolutely committed to serving customers and their company and their families, often to the detriment of their own health. So it's a short-term view to say, I'm going to kill myself for everyone else because if you're not around six months from now or you're sick at home with stress, you're not much good to any of those people. So if you can get your head around the idea that looking after myself is not a selfish act, it's a selfless act so that I have more energy, focus and concentration to serve my customers, my family and my colleagues. That's where it begins. And then it, the usual next step is to notice the little stories we tell ourselves that are the biggest barriers to looking after ourselves. The classic one is I don't have time. And that's never true because we all have the same time each day. And some people find the time to invest in self-care and some don't. So the more honest version of that is it's not at the top of my priority list. And as a result, I didn't attend to exercise or eating healthily. So I recommend to people that they should change the way their calendar looks, put self-care in first. And then, you know, if you have to do that three months out, even if there's no gaps, that's, that's really interesting, right? Like change the way your calendar works. So, you know, I look at my calendar and I've got, uh, you know, three podcast recordings today, three client meetings. I don't have anywhere in my calendar, go for a run, go for a swim, go meditate, right? And I sure as shit don't have that in my calendar in November, December, January, three months out, like you're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a really good, uh, you know, tactical thing. I know Richard is, is, he works on this all the time and he's done a really good job in the last few months of like, he goes on his calendar. It's like golf. It, it says like golf from like, you know, one to four or something like that. Right. Um, so that's a really good tactical tip there in terms of, well, I think we know about time blocking as pertains to work, but t including self care in that time blocking is a really good, kind of tactical uh, call out there. Yeah, and the skill then to, to be able to say no when a client opportunity comes up and it's exercise hour, to say no. Turns out the right thing to do for my customer and for me is say, not now, tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. And it's a good time to have this conversation because I think now is the time to be time blocking your 2021 calendar. Mm. Put in your vacation time, Go and put in your daily exercise or meditation or whatever your chosen health habits are. Yeah. So that as you come into 2021, that space is there and blocked out. And then you put work in the balance rather than the other way around. Yeah. Man, I really suck at this. Richard has dropped off in his audio and video, took, took a dump during this, uh, this podcast. But somewhere he's pointing his finger and waving it at me, you know. <laughs> telling me, I told you so, see, you need to do all this kind of stuff. So uh, I'm sure he appreciates you uh, touching on this. Um, we got to wrap up here. Uh, like I said, Richard had to kind of, he fell off during this call, but how can we, you know, help you? How can we support you? Any questions you have, you know, for us, any causes that you're passionate about right now, you want to give some airtime to? Sure. Well, I'll, may I answer that first for our business and then for a passionate cause? Of course. Yeah. 
you know, we're growing. Luckily, we're always looking for young and ambitious sales talent, or frankly, ambitious of any age, as long as people are coachable. Uh, we're looking for instructional designers and account managers. So we love being part of the community you've created. And hopefully someone listening will reach out to me and say, sounds like a great company. Can I learn more? And people can contact me at Andrew at habits at work spelled out in full H A B A T H A B I T S A T W O R K.com. And my personal passion project is a charity in South Africa where I come from that supports AIDS orphans called acres of love. And particularly in this time, you know, they're short of people who run those houses. There are millions of kids in South Africa orphaned by or struggling because their parents have died or are ill because of that disease. So yeah. something I try and remain connected to, even though I'm from that country and I seldom go back, it's still close to my heart. Yeah, it's still the uh, still the roots. And you're you're in Chicago right now, right? That's where your business is based right now. That's correct. Downtown so, Chicago. Speaking to you from now, and uh, have a home in Evanston. Yeah. So so uh, the people who might be interested in working for you, do they need to be in the Chicagoland area, or they can they be remote? They can be remote. Our entire business is remote now. I'm not sure we'll ever go back, even when COVID's over. And talent will find a way to make it work wherever they are. That's great. Couldn't agree, couldn't agree more. We want to thank lead411.com as well as gong.io for their support. Uh, you know, they make it possible for Richard and I to bring you all these episodes. I believe you are episode number 151 this year, Andrew. So wow. we've been busy. So big thanks to Gong and, and lead411. And thank you, Andrew, for uh, not only being on the show, but bearing with us as uh, we had some technical difficulties here. It wasn't the best audio feed, but uh, you're a trooper and a good sport with everything. So I uh, appreciate it. It's my absolute honor to have been here. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, bud. All right, man. Take it easy.